Hello, I'm Emma Louise Coffey and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. In light of the recent discussions around processing capacity, Lawrence Shalhoub joins us on this week's episode to compare the Irish seasonal milk supply curve versus the flatter milk supply curve we see on the continent. Last uh, October, we published a report uh, called the analysis of the Irish dairy sector post quota. And I suppose it was, you know, a collaboration between uh, Chagask, um, CIT and uh, UCC. And I suppose the authors were Declan O'Connor, um, uh, Lugigo Sila and Fiona Thorne. So just, I suppose, a little bit about the report. The report, the idea behind it was to look at what has happened in the dairy industry uh, before quotas between before quotas were removed to when when quotas were removed up to 2019, and we wanted to look at what has happened in terms of milk output, um, in terms of profitability, in terms of milk price, in terms of seasonality, and I suppose our big focus was to look at you know a lot of this information is out there in the public domain, but it wasn't really I suppose all put together in in one report, and that was part of the focus of our report. And looking then, like, what are the main findings of the report and, and what were you chasing or looking at, Lawrence? I suppose, yeah, there was there was a number of things we wanted to look at. We wanted to look at how uh, well Irish farmers or how do Irish farmers compare in terms of milk price, in terms of profitability to some uh, EU counterparts and indeed into to New Zealand. That was the first thing. But we also wanted to look at, I suppose, and get into a little bit behind the details around why there's differences in, for example, milk price. What is the impact on, for example, seasonality on milk price? What is the impact of the investment that has been made uh, on Irish farms, uh, you know, and, and, and indeed in processors, at, at, you know, to build the additional processing capacity? Uh, what has that impact been on milk price that gets paid? So we wanted to be able to, you know, get an understanding to look at, are we still right to stay with the model that we have, which is seasonal for cow's calf to, to, uh, to, to match the demand between the animals and the supply uh, in terms of grass growth, or should we be moving away from, from that? That was part of our overall objective. And looking then to milk price, you know, where are we in the league if we compare ourselves to those uh, European counterparts and indeed New Zealand? Yeah, so it's um, it's a good, good, good question. It's really, I suppose, um, probably one of the main findings from the report was that, like, I suppose, if we look at over the period 2015 to 2019, and if we look at the period, you know, if we look at maybe break it into maybe almost four leagues, four different uh, categories. So at the top of the category is Campina Friesland. Um, and there, over that period, they paid a milk price of 35.22 uh, centiliter. And that's based on a fat of 4.2% and a protein of 3.4% uh, using the LTO comparison. Um, and th- those prices are exclusive of that. So I suppose when we look at it, we can see that they're, you know, by far ahead of, of all uh, the rest of the, the, the uh, I suppose, companies or, or countries. Uh, about 5.4 centiliter ahead of Ireland. So that's a big, big difference between Campina Friesland uh, and Ireland. So that's out in front. If we look at the second league, then the second league, there's probably um, uh, three that can be put into that second league or four. Uh, um, basically what you have is Arla in Denmark. Um, 
you have Danone in France and Lactalis in, in France. So they are kind of heading around the 33 centiliter. Um, that's kind of, you know, up or down, that's where, where they are. So they're approximately 3.1, 3.2 centiliter ahead of Ireland. And then you get down to, you know, the likes of uh, Muller and uh, DMK in, in Germany, and they're about a centiliter ahead of Ireland. So of that comparison, Ireland uh, came out at about 29.8 centiliter. Um, you know, the, essentially you have the campaign of Friesland, 35.22. You have the others, you know, the other um, Arla stroke the French companies at about 33 and the German companies at about 31. Below Ireland, then you have Fonterra and Fonterra was at 28.1 cent per litre. So that was about 1.7 centiliter uh, below Ireland in that comparison. And, you know, looking to the the balance of that, and I guess you talk about profitability and naturally, you know, milk price has a huge impact on profitability, but the other side of the scale and the balance is costs of production. And and you've you've referred to, you know, Ireland chasing this seasonal system, um, you know, in terms of to to take advantage and exploit grass growth. Um, you know, where are our costs relative to, you know, the, the counterparts that you're mentioning there on the, the table? Okay, so so essentially uh, what we did then in terms of, and this was based on work that Fiona Thorne had done, but uh, I suppose what we did then was we took um, the European countries in that, that list. And the reason why we only stuck with the European countries is because they're part of a FADEN network, which is essentially the European uh, version of the National Farm Survey uh, that we're aware of here in Ireland, which is run by Chagask and it is, is monitoring um, farm performance, financial, and, and, and I suppose a lot more uh, since 1972. So, so it's a very strong, very robust database. So what we did was we took that database or, and, and looked at, um, I suppose, cost production in the, the different countries. Now, I suppose just to make the point at the start, we used a process called cash cost plus depreciation, uh, which essentially means that we had the cash costs in each country, and we also put depreciation on top of it. We didn't include uh, owned labor, uh, or we didn't look at total economic costs, which would give you a return uh, to owned land and labor. Just to make that point, and we can talk a little bit about that after maybe, but um, so every country was treated in the same way. So that's really important. So every country owned land or labor was not included in the calculation. Um, so I suppose when we look at the likes of uh, the highest cost country over that period, 2014, 2019, uh, was Denmark. Uh, it came out at 38 centiliter. And the Netherlands came out at uh, 35 centiliter. Uh, France came out at 32 centiliter and UK at about uh, 30 centiliter and Ireland came in there at uh, 24 centiliter. So, you know, massive variation um, between countries. And obviously that has huge implications in terms of overall profitability. So I suppose, you know, again, to make the point that own labor wasn't included or own land values, but uh, subsequent to when the report was done, we also looked at the, the numbers um, if we had put in a cost for owned labor and owned land. And for those countries, Denmark, Germany, France, Ireland, the UK, when we looked at it, Ireland still came out the uh, most profitable uh, over that period of time from when we do include a, a charge in, in those figures. 
And to take it a step further then and, and really delve into the seasonality, like, can you quantify um, the the impact um, of seasonality on the industry, you know, here and, and relative to, you know, the f- farms on the continent where they're operating at a more flatter curve? Yeah, so I suppose, you know, again, that was an interesting, you know, it was something that we were really interested in is to look at what is the implications for seasonality? Because, you know, I suppose there is a lot of, um, or has been over the years, to be honest, until recently, until very recently, there was virtually, you know, little enough comment on it. But um, over the years, there has been a lot of discussion. Have we the right model? Are we right to stick with the seasonal curve? Uh, what is the implication? So we wanted to get a, get a little bit under the, under the hood of that and see what the, what the implications were. So first of all, if we look at, there's a, there's a kind of a term called, um, when we look at processing capacity, it's called uh, process, uh, capacity utilization, which is essentially uh, a calculation that shows, you know, uh, how well we're using our processing capacity. And if we look at some of the European countries, they work at a figure of, you know, somewhere around 90%, even above 90%. So essentially what that means is that their processing capacity is close to fully utilized all year round, which is, uh, obviously has has implications in terms of the requirement for capital uh, when additional uh, expansion happens. It has um, implications for running costs. It has implications for depreciation. Whereas to compare Ireland in that same boat, we're at about 62% in terms of capacity utilization in the country. So we use our capacity, our processing capacity up to 62%. And that's because we have a seasonal curve peaking somewhere around 14% in May. And you know, in the December, January months, there's you know one to two percent. So so very little meant produced over those months. And that has, I suppose, implications around the additional requirements for processing capacity and so on uh, as we expand. So I suppose that's the first thing. That's where we are in terms of uh, capacity utilization. One important note is that you know that has actually um, improved over the last um, four or five years. So with the relaxation of quotas, uh, what we're seeing here is that the shoulders are building up. Uh, we're looking at calf and date. If we look again over the last five or six years, calf and date has moved back from, uh, on average, mean calf and date was somewhere around 6th, 7th of March, maybe 2013, 14. And that's now back to around about 28th of February. So there is, again, movement at farm level back in terms of, of, of uh, calf and date. So I suppose what are the implications from a seasonality and from a, from a, a curve that looks like that? And I suppose what we did was we looked at a piece of work that we did a number of years ago, um, and we kind of updated that based on where we are today. And essentially what we, we showed from that was that um, about 1.3 cent or 1.4 cent a litre, uh, if we flatten our curve, not flatten. So what we did was we compared a seasonal calving, so a spring calving system, to a system where we calve 50% in the autumn and 50% in the spring. When we do that, uh, our seasonal calving, as I've said just a minute ago, our seasonal calving curve peaks in May at about 14%, whereas our uh, split 50-50 calving system uh, peaks in April at approximately 12%. So, you know, that's, you'd have imagined with a lot more cows calving in the autumn that your peaks, you know, that you're, you'd have flattened the curve uh, even more, but you don't. Uh, in, in essence, to get a European curve, we'd have to calf all year round, which again is something that we don't want to do. But just to look at it in terms of, you know, capacity utilization, when we look at capacity utilization, as I've said, about 62%, we're, 
Currently, if we move to 50-50 uh, spring autumn, that capacity utilization would go up to about 70%. The implications for that then are uh, milk price would go up by about 1.3, 1.4 centiliters. And where do you expect costs to go there, Lawrence? You're going to see an increase in, in you know, your milk revenue of 1.3, 1.4 and, and implications for cost? Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, and that's probably the most important thing. All our analysis shows us that uh, to compare the two of those, costs will go up by about three centiliter. So what we're saying here is that there will be a reduction in profit to move to that split calving system to the tune of 1.6 centiliter. And I think what's really, really important is, you know, yes, there will be a higher milk price. So, you know, um, we'd be able to pay a, mil, a higher milk price. The industry would be able to pay a higher milk price. That's clear. But the problem is that profitability at farm level would be reduced. Uh, you know, scale it up to where we are today at roughly 8 billion litres. It's worth about 130 million euros a year to stay with where we are rather than trying to flatten the curve. Uh, so, so I suppose, you know, Importantly, you know, the curve calving down, um, calving cows to to uh, grass supply, matching feed demand and feed supply is still the key direction for the industry uh, going forward. And that's something that we'll, we'll, you know, have to focus on. I suppose there is little things we could do in terms of um, calving pattern. You know, we're, we're somewhere around the 28th of February now. Um, there is, you know, our, our analysis tells us that the optimum calving date for most of the country is probably mid-February. So there is scope to tidy up the curve further. Uh, there's, there's scope, you know, to increase the fertility of the herd. Nationally, we're at about 65% uh, six-week calving rate. You know, the target is 90. So there's lots of progress we can still make within the spring calving um, model. But the spring calving model is going to be the most profitable. And looking then to expansion, Lawrence, you know, how do we compare with our European counterparts? You know, you mentioned the removal of milk quotas. You know, we've seen a significant expansion in Ireland. You know, how how does that compare to the continent? Yeah, you know, sure, I suppose in, in reality, if we look at all the studies that were done before milk quota, uh, milk quotas were removed. You know, the narrative was, and this was an EU statement probably back in 2008, 2009, where they said that they wanted milk production to move to areas of competitive advantage. And essentially what we've, that's in essence what has happened. Uh, we've had significant expansion in Ireland um, and to a large degree, you know, some expansion in Europe, not, not saying, you know, there has been, but the percentage wise increases have been much higher in, in, um, in Ireland than in, in some of the other countries, you know, so, um, and that's, 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 you know, uh, I suppose because of our cost base, uh, I suppose even if we go back to 2008, nine, uh, when it was flagged that milk quotas were going to be gone in 2015, uh, essentially you could see at that point that farmers were getting ready. And if you look at the number of replacement heifers being born um, then uh, relative to two or three years before that, uh, they dramatically increased over that period. And farmers, um, you know, I suppose started to ramp up almost to the tune, you know, a little bit too early because, you know, obviously um, there was milk or super levy issues back then in, you know, 14, 15, uh, 13, even um, in, in, the, in the exit strategy for, for, for milk quota. So obviously that had implications. 
from your knowledge and, and, and your work with modeling and, you know, interacting with the National Farm Survey and, you know, the, the expansion that we have experienced in Ireland, you know, is it the right thing going forward to continue on with our seasonality? Like, I, I mean, I know you, you, you've, as you've said, you've modeled a 50-50 and it, it will lead to a higher cost and a higher milk price, the higher costs outweigh the milk price. But like, is this the right thing to do? Or, you know, should we aim to flatten the curve a bit? So, uh, you know, based on based on my analysis and based on anything that I've seen, absolutely, it's the only model that we should stay with is that spring calving model because um, there's a number of reasons. One, um, you know, we don't have, you know, our comparative competitive advantage is around being able to grow grass, uh, be able to utilize high quantities of that grass. Uh, and to be honest, farmers have, have really honed that and they're, they're, they're really good at it. So moving away from that to something that um, we don't have an advantage in, we don't have, you know, we're not able to grow massive crops of maize and massive other feeds. We can't, you know, we're, we're not likes of, you know, continental Europe where we can grow big crops of, of other feeds. We're not rot. We don't have a Rotterdam where you can bring in lots of uh, grain at a relatively cheap uh, cost because of that 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 you know the port side of it. So we don't have a competitive comparative advantage in any of those other areas except in in grass-based milk production. So to move away from that, in my opinion, would be um, would not be wise move at all. So we need to be really, really, really careful. We need to stick with the curve and there's you know a lot of narrative around milk yields and all that uh, at the moment in terms of organic n or or whatever and again if you look at it you know the higher the milk yields the higher the organic n so you know that'll reduce our stocking rate so if we increase our organic n because we drive milk yield faster our our, our stocking rate will reduce faster so it doesn't really make sense to you know bring in feed from for example south america if we look at sustainability does it make sense to bring in feed from South America to produce milk that can be converted to powder to send to some other part of the world? Probably not. So we have to make sense. We have to make use with what we have. And that's a grass based system. And, and let's go down that route, Lawrence. You know, you mentioned that, you know, increasing that um, feed that we're importing in will will invariably reduce the stocking rate and the number of cows we have in the country. Do you see other environmental implications for moving to that less seasonal system? We do. And, and again, an important point to me, you know, again, there's a lot of narrative out there around the expansion of dairy industry. And, and you know, we're just just about just maybe just passing uh, the dairy cow numbers today um, that were in place in 1984 when milk quotas came in. So, you know, talk about running faster to stand still. So at now. We're just where we were in, in 1984 with cow numbers, or just maybe just slightly ahead of it now. So just, you know, there is a lot of an ar- a lot of discussion around cow numbers and so on. Um, in the last, you know, six or seven years, that's all that's happened. Uh, we've just got back to where we were in 1984. So I suppose just looking at um, our grass-based system and as- essentially what we're trying to do, I suppose we're trying to produce a human edible protein from something that's inedible, which is human inedible, which is, is grazed grass. And that's probably, you know, if we stand back and look at uh, food security, and if we look at, uh, you know, consumption patterns globally and what's going to happen, you know, the more um, that we convert a human inedible feed 
into something that's uh, human edible, um, it's obviously a lot easier to stand over that system. Um, so that's what grass-based systems do in the long term, you know, where animals are fed uh, feeds that humans can eat. There may be question marks over the system, and that's something we need, we need to think about in the direction of travel that we're going in. Going back to, I suppose, how sustainable our system is compared to if we were to move away. So essentially what we would say that, you know, um, and based on the modeling work that we've done, if we were to move to, let's say, a, a, a non-seasonal production system or a split calving system, our analysis tells us that the carbon footprint of that milk would be somewhere between 10, uh, 12, 13% higher. Um, so what essentially we do is we'd be moving to a system that's less sustainable from a carbon footprint point of view. If we look at it, there'd be more indoor feeding. So there'd be probably more ammonia, more slurry production. Virtually every one of the metrics that you'd be looking at in terms of you know, greenhouse gases, ammonia, uh, even if we look at the proportion of the diet that would be um, human edible of the animal uh, would, 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 would increase as well. So virtually every metric that you'd look at would um, deteriorate if we move to a, a split calving or uh, more split calving in our system. So from an environmental point of view, you'd have to say it, it, it wouldn't be um, good from a sustainability point of view. And as a slightly side point, Lawrence, um, on that, you know, you're referring to dairy cow numbers in 1984. And if we compare the cow of today versus um, the cow from back then, and I guess even even more recently, you know, um, you know, since the abolition of milk quotas, you mentioned that there is an increase in supply in the shoulder years, you know, is um, and I just talk through that and. I guess the reasoning for that. So I guess two parts to that question. Firstly, the cow of 1984 versus now. And then secondly, um, you know, what has happened in terms of production since the abolition of milk quotas on a per cow basis? OK, so I suppose just looking at, um, you know, since the relaxation of quotas, what we can see is that um, since between 2014 and 2019, milk solids uh, per cow has increased by about 20 percent. So that's a fairly, you know, substantial uh, increase over a relatively short period. And even if we just look um, between 2010, you know, the food harvest reference period was 2007 to 2009. Uh, and if we look at how milk yield has changed and, and over that period up to 2019, you're talking about roughly 100 kilos of an increase in milk, milk solids per cow or an increase of, you know, roughly about 33%, which is absolutely huge. Um, I suppose what we can say here is that, you know, in the uh, quota periods, uh, milk production per cow has been constricted. And that was being constricted by a number of reasons, you know, uh, shorter lactations. Um, I suppose cows being restricted at grass because the feed, you know, if you fed, you're, you're facing into a super levy fine. So these are things that um, were reducing production, were reducing efficiency of the system. Uh, when they're relaxed, um, obviously that has uh, strong implications for the, the output. Going back to 1984, and I'm only guessing here, Emma-Louise, I think we were somewhere just north of 3,000 litres per cow in terms of output with probably protein and fat somewhere around 3.2 and 3.6 um, or maybe 3.5. And I'm just guessing those numbers. But um, absolutely huge production productivity increases since then. And I guess, you know, the we had uh, planned to have this conversation in May in and around peak. But I guess... Um, 
factors within the industry have prompted us to have this conversation early. But I guess if we make reference to the current situation within Glambia, you know, are they looking to move, um, you know, from the seasonal system to a kind of an all year round calving system? So um, I suppose just, I suppose, make reference to that. Um, essentially what, what, you know, the, the, um, the Glambia issue is around planning from what we understand. So planning permission um, and um, certain objections and that's slowing up the process to get planning. So from that point of view, I suppose, um, and it's really important that, that, that we understand that it's, it's from that point of view, uh, we're talking about any change to anything um, rather than a policy. Because I would be really concerned if we were talking about uh, uh, maybe a Prosser-led discussion around policy of needing to produce milk over the winter. Then that would be a completely different debate and we would have to be um, very clear that that's not the direction of the industry. And that's, you know, we need to be crystal clear on that, that from a policy perspective, um, moving to more um, non-seasonal production does not make sense unless we have new products coming out of the woodwork that are telling us that are going, that'll justify paying that premium over those uh, winter months that justify that winter milk production, which is, you know, and those premiums, those products haven't been there uh, and, and it's, probably less likely that those products will be there going forward. Um, but who knows, maybe they'll come. But those products have to justify the move. So is it planning or policy? So from a policy point of view, we'd be very concerned um, if, if, if that was the direction we were going in. And um, from a planning point of view, I suppose that's a different debate. And I suppose the issue here, and you know, you could think back and say, right, this is a bit like the quota regime, you know, restricting production. And, and in essence, it's not because, you know, from that quota perspective, we knew the timeframes, you know, from 2007, 2008, when the, when the notification was given, the quotas were gone in 2015, we knew what was going to happen. So farmers knew what, you know, they could plan. They were planning six, seven years ahead. And as time went on, they were planning three, four years ahead. And as time went on, they were planning one year or two years ahead. But they had, they could have a plan. The problem here is the timeframe is very short and people have, you know, actions on the ground that they're doing and that has you know very strong implications for them and their systems and and just to go down that route for a minute lawrence like you have highlighted that um you know farmers have improved technically and you you've quantified it in terms of calving date you know they've pulled back their calving date and improved their fertility to align with grass growth they have improved their milk solids production and just in the last number of years you know you know to, to a tune of 20 percent and and this is to match the seasonal system to exploit what what we have as an advantage in ireland and you know as it stands this is just a glambia issue and and a glambia farmer say supplier issue and you know glambia are citing it as a temporary measure um so a three-year measure but i guess there it is a firm reminder of milk quota times from an, an irish farmer perspective um you know do you see this sort of problem rearing its head for farmers you know in, in the future like is this something that we're going to be looking at and discussing in the longer term i suppose there's a bigger discussion and louise is going to happen in the background around um you know environmental policy and all that that's almost separate and it's probably not for today but 
that's going to be there in the background as well. So my clear view is that we would be better, you know, to um, instead of, um, you know, moving away from the curve that we have in the long term, we'd be better off to stop. If if there's if these are, is problems that we're going to face down the road, um, you know, why would you damage the efficiency of your system as a whole, um, you know, to continue to expand? So we'd have to definitely rethink any, um, you know, industry expansion. Um, in the long term, uh, if these were problems that we were going to face uh, down the road, because we certainly don't want to damage what we have in terms of the efficiency of the seasonal system, and we need to be really careful of that. Um, and and perversely, you know, some of these discussions that are going on uh, around the uh, the Glan B issue and planning actually are going to um, um, be deleterious from the environmental perspective, because any move away from, you know, or any more milk that's produced in those winter months for even a short period is not good from the environmental perspective. And looking then and putting yourself in the boots of these farmers who are currently in this situation, um, you know, what is your advice to them? What can they do where they are constricted by the processing capacity? So again, yeah, and, and again, noting the short-term nature of it, it's it's very difficult situation to be in, and I suppose... You know, this is something that we would have said down through the years uh, across different fora. Um, I suppose the first thing to do is to get your head around, um, you know, what is, how bad is the situation? So, you know, you're going, I think, from my understanding, um, there will be notifications sent out from Glen B in the next few days around, or, or has been sent out potentially on um, your um, processing, I suppose, capacity or whatever. Um, and then, it's really important then that, that farmers engage in, in the, the numbers and see what are the implications for um, each individual farm and then to make a plan based on that. And for me, um, you know, lots of suppliers will be very unhappy, um, but some tinkering with their system, whether it's reducing feed around peak, whether it's maybe putting some of the herd on once a day, um, little tinkering with the system will will get them by for a, a one, two, three year period. But there are probably are a cohort of farmers that are, you know, dramatically affected. And um, for those farmers, then it's it's going to need a, a separate plan. And the first part of that plan for me is around doing a cash flow and looking at the implications for the business over the next two to three years and, and getting a very clear picture on what are the implications of um, different scenarios, whether that's, um, you know, putting all the herd on once a day or restricting supply at peak or whatever the different scenarios are to get a clear picture of what they are on the uh, cash flow of the business, because that's where this is going to, uh, I suppose, um, pass and fail. So, you know, give you an example. So if you could uh, for, you know, obviously this is not going to affect or not going to help the extreme situation, but take an individual farmer that, you know, is, 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 is restricted, but maybe not restricted to the tune of 50 or 60 percent. But if you think of a, a, a farmer that could reduce concentrate feed at peak over that period by, you know, let's say they were feeding four kilos, five kilos last year at peak. Um, if they reduce that by three kilos, let's say a response of 0.75 litres of uh, milk per kilo of concentrate. Um, and let's say they put put uh, maybe a quarter of the herd on, on once a day. Um, 
because those those animals were maybe in poor body condition score or had some sort of small issues with them. Um, we know that once a day will reduce milk volume by about 20%, 26% um, and solids by about 20%. So if they were to do that uh, at peak, reduce kilos of concentrate by three, uh, reduce, uh, put 25% of the herd on once a day, that would essentially reduce uh, peak by about 15%. So, you know, tweaks like that to the system um, in conjunction with the, the small increases that they're getting um, will probably help, you know, the vast majority of the farmers over the system. Where the situation is much more extreme, again, as I say, case by case, individual cash flow first, and then look at the scenarios with somebody, um, Chagask or a private consultant or whoever, uh, to come up with the scenarios. Um, and again, really important here that you start discussing these issues with somebody, doesn't matter who. Um, you know, because two heads are better than one and, you know, whether it's whatever the scenarios are, whatever the solutions are, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that these, 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 these problems are discussed. I think that's a, a really good point, um, Lawrence, in, in terms of, I guess, it's, it's easy with uh, what's happening um, to bury your head in the sand. But, you know, a, a simple uh, cash flow budget and it's something that we can attach to the show notes. And as you say, you know, your Chagas advisor is also there to help um, and, and talk through some uh, possible solutions to your situation. Thank you, Lawrence. No problem. Thank you, Emily. That's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And my thanks to Lauren Shalou for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.